Of course, I have to end the season talking about an alligator story. It's not even an especially good one, but its depictions of alligators evoke centuries-old fantastical superstitions and fears about these ubiquitous symbols of Florida wildlife. I guess in a sense, I'm not even discussing one alligator story, but a large body of them that are likely influenced by the same source materials. 18th century Philadelphia naturalist and author William Bartram was probably not the first to describe alligators as bellowing and belching clouds of smoke like dragons, without a hint of irony or sarcasm, I should add. But his 1791 book, Travels, I'd argue, opened the door for all manner of dinosaur-sized man-eating gators that flooded through our media and pop culture universe in the years since. A traveler on an even earlier European expedition to Florida, though, beat him to that particular motif by a couple hundred years. Watch Alexandra Aja's remarkable 2019 film, Crawl, and you'll see the ghosts of Jacques Lemoyne's illustrations from a 1564 French incursion into the state. I'm Christopher Nick, and welcome to the Florida Book Club. Crawl is not a cinematic masterpiece. I should get that out of the way up front. Slightly above cheap fare such as Sharknado, in the words of Lauren Vanderveen of Allmovie. And most of it was filmed in Serbia, of all places. But it passes for Florida well enough, I suppose. It doesn't really matter anyway, since most aspects of the setting are either wildly inaccurate or distorted to such a degree that the knowledgeable viewer will settle into cynical acceptance pretty quick. There aren't many houses in the state, I'd reckon, that have a basement. Or is it a crawl space, like the one where the protagonist's father lives? The alligators in this film are something to behold. They're the size of station wagons, and they seem to be actively seeking human prey. As with some species of sharks, also widely and ignorantly dreaded as so-called man-eaters, the idea of alligators stalking and killing humans for food is pretty ridiculous. Neither of these are new motifs, of course, but in such notable films as Louis Teague's Alligator from 1980 or Mary Lambert's 2011 sci-fi original Megapython vs. Gatoroid, there was some kooky mutation or serum or something that was making the gators supersized and aggressive. Crawl offers no such rationale. These huge critters seem to have just washed into town in the wake of a hurricane-induced storm surge. The characters, already traumatized by the storm, don't have much time or inclination to wonder why the animals are acting so aggressively, or perhaps in the logic of the film, this is just normative behavior for these reptiles. And by logic of the film, I mean the filmmaker's own ideas of how most of the public perceives alligators. Dogs kill way more people in the U.S. every year than alligators do. Even without the numbers in front of me, I'd imagine dogs killed more people in 2020 alone than alligators have in all of the years since records were kept. But alligators have claws and scales and sharp teeth, and they inhabit a place in the imagination where dark swamps contain dread secrets in addition to quicksand, poisonous snakes and plants, etc., etc., Alexandra Aja was not the first to realize the sinister, monstrous potential of the alligator, of course. There is a long-storied tradition, partially alluded to above, of portraying alligators with near-supernatural abilities to hunt and kill in addition to possessing enormous size. And this tradition long predates the comically scary films of the late 20th century. It predates works such as Shelley Katz's 1977 novel Alligator, which I discussed in Season 1's finale. It even predates the ra offensively racist postcards one might encounter in Florida in the late 19th to early 20th century that depicted black children being used as gator bait. For those interested in that particular so-called tradition, there's an excellent article by the undefeated Dominique Foxworth linked on our website. 
No, Lemoyne and Bartram, inadvertently or not, set the tone for virtually every portrayal of alligators as primeval killers to follow in the subsequent centuries. Lemoyne, whose original paintings appeared shortly after his death in a volume edited by the Flemish engraver Theodore de Bry, has a name that might be recognizable to a number of Floridians. His name adorns the Lemoyne Art Center in Tallahassee, for instance. Bartram's name is, I imagine, much more well-known. The son of famed naturalist John Bartram, his family's Philadelphia estate, is now a beautiful garden center on the banks of the Schuylkill River. The Bartram Trail traces the route he took through the Deep South in the late 1770s, the expedition that would provide him the material for travels. Residents of St. John's County in Florida might also recognize the name from Bartram Trail High School. Biographies aside, both men produced some grand depictions of the flora, fauna, and indigenous populations of Florida at a time when white Europeans, yes, even in the 1790s, understood the New World mostly through legend, rumor, and exotic superstition. Neither did much to dispel the air of exoticism about the native populations of Florida or their customs. Lemoyne provided some lurid-sounding details about the Temukua tribe's religion and how the chief he met had married and had a number of children with his own mother, for instance. But a small portion of their accounts, a more sizable one in Bartram's, but still small relative to the rest of travels, is devoted to their observations of alligators. Lemoyne, in his observations of the Temukua's strategies for killing alligators, frames it as an existential struggle. These giant creatures, he writes, must be guarded against day and night, just as we guard ourselves against our worst enemies. Funny, then, that these, quote, giant creatures don't occupy more of his account if they present that much of a constant insidious threat to the Temukua. In the painting I'm going to describe, which can be viewed on our website, the gators doing battle with the tribesmen are easily 25 feet long. Their front claws look capable of seizing a grown man by the torso. Their eerily human-like facial features, which you'll have to see in the painting since my verbal descriptions won't do them justice, are reminiscent more of mythological beasts than of real-life reptiles. This painting and its accompanying text are not a mundane portrayal of the alligator, much like the film Crawl. There's also the brutal way in which the Temukua kill the gators, thrusting tree trunks into their jaws, flipping them onto their backs, and ripping their undersides open. In the painting, six men are depicted in this endeavor, the jaws of the gator opening to accommodate the telephone pole-sized trunk. This method would only be feasible, it's worth noting, if the gators were the size of a car. It's amusing to think of a group of grown men trying this on an alligator of more typical six-foot length. But perhaps in the days before settlement, overdevelopment, hunting and poaching on a massive scale, gators of this size were common. What the alligators in William Bartram's accounts lack in size, they make up for in aggression and sheer numbers. The accounts in the travels of Part 2, Chapter 4, wherein the intrepid narrator makes camp in the Lake George area on a bluff adjacent to a cypress swamp, are marked by repeated incursions of crocodiles upon his food supply and his person. I should note that Bartram interchanges the terms alligator and crocodile quite casually, although he was not anywhere near far south enough to have encountered true crocodiles. The episodes detailed in this chapter seem calculated to instill atavistic fear of alligators in the audience. Bartram's entanglements with them are the stuff of horror films. When he's not furiously fighting for his life against them, he views them in terrified awe from a distance. He writes, Behold him rushing forth from the flags and reeds. His enormous body swells. His plated tail brandished high floats upon the lake. The waters, like a cataract, descend from his opening jaws. Clouds of smoke issue from his dilated nostrils. The earth trembles with his thunder. 
This is the preamble to witnessing quote-unquote horrid combat between two gators, whereupon the victor emerges from the water, the forests and shores resound his dreadful roar together with the triumphing shouts of the assembled alligators gathered to watch. I'm liberally quoting and paraphrasing from these passages, just so you know. My apprehensions were highly alarmed after being a spectator of so dreadful a battle, he concludes after this event. And well, they should have been, for as for the remainder of his time at Lake George, Bartram reports relentless attacks in his canoe and on land, as though the gators are actively hunting him as prey. He fears at various points being yanked from his canoe or camp and instantly devoured, or seized and dragged into the water. He beats them down with a club at close range. He shoots one in the head with his musket. And rather than retreating in mortal fear back the way he came after such encounters, he resolves to press on further into the watery wilderness alone. In the name of science and discovery, of course. More passages followed that seem plucked from the nightmares of the most gator-phobic imaginations, and such imaginations, in my experience, are remarkably common among the general population, mostly non-Floridians. Returning to his camp at Lake George one evening, he reports, I saw a scene, new and surprising, which at first threw my senses into such a tumult that it was some time before I'd comprehend what was the matter. It is, he realizes, a prodigious assemblage of crocodiles at this place, which exceeded everything of the kind I had ever heard of. The St. Juan's River, as he refers to it, is at this point choked from shore to shore with gators for perhaps half a mile in either direction from his vantage point. It would have been easy to have walked across on their heads had the animals been harmless. They are massed there to devour trout, attempting to pass through by the thousands, he surmises. The horrid noise of their closing jaws, rising with their prey, some feet upright above the water, the floods of water and blood rushing out of their mouths, and the clouds of vapor issuing from their nostrils were truly frightful. Well then, his fear dissipates a bit when he realizes the monsters are focused on the fish, so well employed in their own element that he is not in any immediate danger were it only so easy to convince most humans of this lack of threat regarding alligators. Movies like Crawl draw on ancient motifs like those employed by Lemoyne and Bartram. They certainly are not aiming to teach any ecological lessons or to inculcate a sense of healthy respect for nature. As it goes with its forebears, so it goes with Aja's film. Alligators attack boats. They stalk and gorily devour people. One particularly lurid scene involves a flooded mini-mart with the gators stalking would-be looters through the waterlogged aisles. And there's even a scene a la Bartram of a potential victim striking back with a shovel hoping to pummel the gator into retreat through sheer repeated blunt force, as Bartram did with his club aboard the canoe. It's not surprising to see gators portrayed this way in contemporary media, but it is a little sad. It's media-like crawl that reinforce the old phobias about alligators and lead to tragic misunderstandings, usually at the alligator's expense. Reptiles in general don't seem to be valued members of ecosystems in the public mind to begin with. Movies such as this don't do anything to improve their public image. But as Donald Spencer states in his fascinating 2009 work, A History of the Alligator, this particular reptile has touched every tourist and resident in Florida in some way, serving as a visual, tangible link to distant and rarely imagined worlds. He goes on to describe the evocations of dinosaurs and primeval jungles alligators inspire. They have, he notes, intrigued explorers, writers, artists, scientists, residents, cartoonists, tourists, filmmakers, photographers, and others for nearly 500 years. 
While he also writes of native Florida tribes' fascination with gators, it's worth men mentioning that the monstrous, sinister, atavistic fascination with them as voracious man-eaters began with white European explorers. As with most everything else in the New World, their fearsome qualities were exaggerated, maybe even fetishized to a degree. And we are still living with that legacy today. Five characters were devoured by alligators and crawled. The total number of fatal U.S. alligator attacks in the entire decade of the 2010s? Seven. In real life, a killing rampage like the one depicted in this film would be a horrifically unprecedented occurrence. In the movies, it's de rigueur. I'm indebted to the Dover edition of William Bartram's Travels, edited by Mark Van Doren, for the excerpts from that work, and to the Florida Reader, edited by Maurice O'Sullivan and Jack C. Lane, for the reproductions of Jacques Lemoyne's engravings and the accompanying text. And now, we are joined by special guest Julia Neng to discuss Jarrett C. Daniels' book, Butterflies of Florida, A Field Guide. Welcome back to the club, Julia. Hello. Hey there. What do you like best about this book? The blue butterflies. The blue ones? Yes. Okay. They are really pretty. We don't see, I don't feel like we see them too often around here. Where did you get this book? I found Ooh, that's nice. I missed that trip. Did you like Bach Tower Gardens? Yes. Is it a good place to see butterflies? Yes. I bet it is. So what is your favorite butterfly in the book? It is the same as blue. Have you seen one before? No. Okay. Which butterfly in the book would you want to see? The red spotted purple. That's a pretty one. I know the one you're talking about. Where is that one found in Florida? North Florida. Eh, so we probably don't get many of them around here, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so who would you recommend this book to? My friends Abby, Helene, and Garden. Why? Because they really like butterflies just like me. Oh, that is awesome. Do you think this is a great state to see butterflies? Yes. <laughs> I do too. We certainly see a lot of monarchs around here. Yes. And the ones, I, are they zebra swallowtails? We don't really know what they are, the yellow and black striped ones. Okay, do you have a joke for us today? Yes. Okay, what is it? What do you call an older snowman? An older snowman? I don't know. Water! Water! <laughs> oh. <coughs> that is a knee slapper. I laughed so hard I almost coughed. You did cough. I did. You're right. Okay, well, thank you for being with us today, Julia. Bye-bye. Thanks for attending this meeting of the Florida Book Club. There are links and media related to this episode on our website. This wraps up season two of our series, and thanks again for sticking with us. Thanks also to my brother John for making all this happen. Season three is probably a few months down the road, hopefully delivered with better recording equipment. Earth Day was almost a month ago, but as we reflect on the progress still to make on environmental challenges, I'd like to leave you with this thought from Tampa Bay Times reader Jeffrey Rubenstein from a letter to the editor. Unless Floridians realize that the patchy green spaces that still exist in and around our towns and cities are more than just another development opportunity, another tax-generating smoke shop or storage facility, or another gated community, we will have created an apocalyptic hellscape, a manicured parody of Florida. These remaining green spaces are the lungs that make our cities livable. Someone is going to have to explain to future generations why we thought it was better to pave and develop a living, breathing ecosystem so we could have another Wawa and a convenient place to get a fresh sandwich. Well said. Melodramatic, but a genuine concern is there. 
We'll see you somewhere on the beach in a few months.